Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. The Missouri governor signed it in July of 1919, but then it took a whole other year to get 34 states. And so Missouri, we were not dead last in this. No, we were the 11th state. Hey, <laughs> so we, we were can, actually we, pretty early. This sounds remarkable for us. We should take some pride in this. <laughs> <laughs> Last August marked 100 years since American women gained the right to vote. That right was a long time coming, and the fight to secure it involved many, many women, some of them right here in St. Louis. That struggle is the focus of an exhibition at the Missouri History Museum. It opened last summer and remains on display. It's called Beyond the Ballot, St. Louis and Suffrage. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. It's now Women's History Month, and we thought it appropriate to revisit our conversation about it from last summer. So joining me for that conversation last August was Katie Moon. She's the exhibits manager at the Missouri History Museum. Also joining me was Elizabeth Eichmann. She's a PhD candidate in American Studies at St. Louis University. I first asked Katie what finally happened in August 1920 to give women a right that men had enjoyed for hundreds of years. So that was actually when the 34th state finally ratified the 19th Amendment. So Missouri had signed it in, the Missouri governor signed it in July of 1919, but then it took a whole other year to get 34 states. And, and when we say, you know, they had to ratify it and, and it took a year, like what was the idea? There had to be individual votes within all of these states to sign off on this thing? Right. So each so it's presented to Congress and then each governor had to sign off on on the amendment. Um, So the House of Representatives had to sign off on it on in each state. Um, And so it it had a state by state vote and it required a majority of two thirds. And that was 34 states at that point. Hmm. And so, Missouri, we were not dead last in this. No, we were the 11th state, (laughs) so we we were actually pretty early. This sounds remarkable for us. We should take some pride in this. (laughs) (laughs) So, Elizabeth, I I know your research has looked at um, a a St. Louis woman who fought so hard on this. What do we know about the significance of St. Louis in the early part of the very long road that got us to this point? Yeah, so St. Louis was so active in early suffrage movements. So we're talking like mid-19th century, so decades before the 19th Amendment finally passes in 1920, um, but so, so much activity, multiple different suffrage associations, um, women writing petitions, um, fighting for this here in St. Louis and joining national movements. We hosted national conventions here in St. Louis, lots of activity. Hmm. Now, I know last year you had an internship at the old courthouse downtown, and you ended up doing extensive research on a suffragist from the 19th century. This is Virginia Minor. Who was she, and and what is she remembered for today? 
Yeah. So um, she was a woman who wasn't born here in St. Louis, but moved here at a very young age and um, is most well known for a case that went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court Mm -hmm. in 1875, but started right here in the St. Louis Circuit Court in 1872 at the old courthouse. um, When in late 1872, she attempted to register to vote. And um, Um, She was denied registration and her and her husband just a couple weeks later uh, went into the old courthouse, filed a joint suit per Missouri law at the time. Minor couldn't sue on her own. Um, And that case ultimately went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Hmm. And what was the legal argument that she and I guess her husband had to be involved that, that they were making in this lawsuit? Yeah. So their entire case was based on the premise that the 14th Amendment, um, which in 1868 basically said that those born and naturalized in the U.S. are citizens. It was designed to grant citizenship to those who were formerly enslaved. Mm -hmm. But they argued, ah, if you're born in the United States and you're guaranteed citizen, ship as a citizen you have the right to vote so basically their whole legal argument was that women already had the right to vote per the 14th amendment and they basically just said hey go out and take advantage of a right that you already have so they argued this all the way through the lower circuit court missouri supreme court u.s supreme court and it was ultimately decided by the u.s supreme court and unanimous decision that women were citizens but citizenship did not necessarily guarantee enfranchisement so citizenship Mm -hmm. was not tied to voting rights and they reiterated that the 14th Amendment was meant for recently freed slaves. Um, So, you know, that sort of made that final decision about the relationship between citizenship and voting rights and collapsed their entire case's argument. Hmm. So this was a unanimous loss uh, at the highest court of the land. Uh, Did she give up at that point? What what else do we know about her life and, and her pursuit of this? Yeah, what's so great is she didn't. I mean, you would think that that would be like devastating. And I'm sure there was like a moment of sadness, you know. Um, But she was so active and she continued to hold like leadership positions. You know, she wasn't just like a member of groups. She was the president of multiple groups in St. Louis and Missouri and held those positions up until two years before her death in Mm -hmm. 1894. So she went on lecture tours. She gathered petitions. She served... Um, the National Suffrage Association. So she certainly did not give up after this decision. So Virginia Miner's story, it's a fascinating story, but it's just one um, one part of this much bigger story. And Katie Moon, I know you researched so many St. Louis women's stories in preparation for this exhibit that just opened at the Missouri History Museum. Such a big story to tell. How did you go about framing women's right to vote um, for the Missouri History Museum? Sure. So we did, you know, we had the challenge of trying to figure out how do we tell this suffrage story, you know, that people would be interested in and to really honor the women who are a part of it. And I think there's this misconception that, um, you know, women's history doesn't start until they got the vote. And uh, we really wanted to kind of explode that misconception. And so uh, looking at the history of women um, and their influence on the city from day one. Hmm. and 
the first half of the exhibit is dedicated to 32 women uh, who influenced the city and contributed to the city before 1920, uh, and also providing some context of where women were coming from, what challenges they faced, um, kind of what they were doing to lead them to say, we deserve the vote um, and, and we should have it because we're contributing members of society and we're um, on equal footing. Mm-hmm. And so um, so we look at 32 women, um, you know, everything from Marie, Ch- Madame Chateau, who was, you know, the mother of St. Louis is what we usually call her, um, all the way to Fanny Sellens, who was a union organizer um, who was murdered in West Virginia in 1919 because of her union activity. Hmm. Um, yeah, so we, we really cover the cover the gamut and um, and then we, we dive into that actual suffrage story, which uh, which I believe starts with in in the early 19th century. And sorry, you were saying it, it started with what in the early 19th century? Uh, freedom suits, which, uh, which n- not a lot of people are familiar with, but Dred Scott and his wife, that was a freedom suit. So enslaved people in Missouri had the right by law to sue for their freedom if they thought they were unlawfully enslaved. And so it was a lot of women um, who took these cases to court and were basically arguing that they weren't property that they were people and that they had certain rights that they deserved and and um i believe that that's really when the suffrage movement started in st louis um elizabeth you had mentioned some of these conventions that happened here i understand st louis held the first national suffrage convention how does that fit into um, some of this history we've been talking about here today uh, these freedom suits and these other quests to um to get women the right to vote Yeah. So in October of 1869, St. Louis hosted the first suffrage convention in the state. And certainly um, it's one of the earliest in the nation. And it was held at the Mercantile Library downtown. And both Virginia Minor and Susan B. Anthony, a name we all know well, were in attendance at this convention. And this first convention was, you know, really – important and relevant to Virginia Minor's case because it's during this convention that she and her husband, Francis, actually sort of introduced the idea for the legal basis of the case that they would eventually go and file Hmm. a few years later. And this idea was published in Susan B. Anthony's newspaper, uh, The Revolution. And they must have known in that moment when they reported on this at the convention that there was something great about the idea that it was going to stick because Susan B. Anthony actually had 10,000 additional copies of her newspaper, that one issue, that October issue, reprinted. Um, So extra copies printed and circulated because they must have had a feeling, you know, that this was a good idea, that they had something going for them there. So, and she had a national readership. So, you know, although this is a, a local... A moment of our local history. It certainly had um, national repercussions, and you know, in the years that that followed, immediately women around the nation actually did take up their call to go and attempt to vote um, or attempt to register to vote. So this 
also was not just happening in St. Louis. It was happening all across the nation. Hmm. She was uh, started off this movement here. So, <laughs> Katie, you were talking about the freedom suits. We talked a bit about the first national suffrage convention here. And I understand right. that your new exhibit goes deep. Uh, you have a timeline, the pivotal decade leading up to the passage of this 19th Amendment that got ratified um, 100 years ago this month. What were some of the high points in those final years of just getting this thing across the finish line? Right. So I think there's a lot that people have never heard. Um, in 1914, um, the women of Missouri had submitted a petition to get suffrage on the state ballot. Hmm. And so it actually went to a popular vote in November of 1914. And so um, I love what Elizabeth was saying about Virginia Minor, because these ladies didn't do anything without a strategy. Nothing ever happened by accident. And um, in 1914, they did a publicity push across the city, and they had their own stamps created. They had um, marketing materials, and, um, and, and so they really expected suffrage to pass hmm. by the state at that time, because states could also give women the right to vote. Unfortunately, the people that they talked to the most were people who were like them, um, you know, more upper class, more educated. Um, and so unfortunately, they they failed and it didn't pass in 1914. Hmm. Um, the only ward, the only ward that passed it was in the Central West End, Ward 28. And it failed the worst down in the brewery wards, um, because people were, were afraid that if women got the vote, that they would vote in prohibition, hmm. and they weren't wrong. <laughs> um, so, so nineteen, and we in the exhibit have uh, a banner that the women used at that point, and we also have this great. Um, it's called a voiceless speech, and it's almost like an early PowerPoint of these pages that they could turn that ha- that were written on, because these women were used to giving speeches, and so they could just stand in front of a crowd and flip these sheets. Um, so 1914 was a pivotal year, and then 1916 was when St. Louis hosted the Democratic National Convention, hmm. and the women decided to hold what they called the Golden Lane Parade, which was known as the Walkless Talkless Parade, because they didn't actually march down the street. Um, instead, all of the delegates to the, the convention stayed at the Jefferson Hotel, which is still standing today. It's the Jefferson Arms Hotel, Mm -hmm. Locust and Chestnut area. And so they all stayed there, but then had to walk down Locust to get to the Coliseum, which is where the convention was being held. And about 8,000 women from St. Louis and across the country stood on both sides of the street wearing white dresses, their votes for women sashes, and yellow umbrellas. And just stared down those delegates as they walked to the Coliseum. Wow. Um, yes. <laughs> so imagine as a you know as a politician having these women who could be your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, just staring at you, basically saying, "Why is suffrage not on the ballot? Why do we not yet have this vote? You know, 50 years after we started." Um, and so they did put it on the ballot for that 1916 election. They put it on the the, um, the platform, the presidential platform. And so it was really at that point that more and more people, start, more and more men started supporting the suffrage movement. Um, and so that the 1916 year was really kind of the climax um, 
of, of the suffrage movement in St. Louis. My guests today in this Encore conversation include Katie Moon. She's the exhibits manager at the Missouri History Museum. And also Elizabeth Eichmann. She's a Ph.D. candidate in American Studies at St. Louis University. Beyond the Ballot, St. Louis and Suffrage is on display at the Missouri History Museum. It opened last summer and remains on display through the summer of 2022. More of that conversation in just a bit. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. Welcome back. We'll return to my conversation about women's suffrage in just a moment. First, we have a quick reminder. In addition to listening to St. Louis on the Air on the radio or through our podcast, you can also connect with our production team on Facebook. Search for St. Louis on the Air there and request to join our Facebook group. We love to hear from listeners and draw on your ideas for the show, both in real time and leading up to and after our segments. And now back to my encore conversation with Katie Moon. She's the exhibits manager at the Missouri History Museum. And also Elizabeth Eichmann. She's a Ph.D. candidate in American Studies at St. Louis University, and she has done some in-depth research on suffragist Virginia Minor. Beyond the Ballot, St. Louis and Suffrage is on display at the Missouri History Museum. It opened last summer just in time for the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. And we bring the conversation to you again today as we celebrate Women's History Month. So, Katie, right when we had to take that break there, we were talking about 1916, uh, the Democratic Party convention in St. Louis that year. This seems to have provided a lot of momentum. How did it go from getting included in the party platform to getting across the finish line with this uh, this amendment that had to be ratified? So it really was the women convincing the men to uh, share, share the vote with them. And uh, so... You know, wars are always horrible things, but women really used World War One as a way to prove um, prove themselves worthy of the vote, and uh, it was another part of their strategy. And so, it really was convincing these politicians and these men to start voting yes to suffrage. And so, there was a double pronged approach where you know some some groups of women were saying we have to go state by state, and we have to convince each the government of each state to pass these laws. And then there was another group saying, we need we need a federal amendment. And Susan B. Anthony actually wrote the 19th Amendment in 1875. And it was the same amendment that was introduced and passed in 19, 1919 and 1920. Um, so it was just a lot of strategic talking, a lot of uh, a lot of convincing men in different ways that, that women deserve the right to vote. So um, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a magic pill. There wasn't a magic moment. It was really just these resolute women continuing to make progress. And, uh, you know, they, it, it's easy for us now to say, oh, well, of course, women got the vote in 1920. But for these women, they've been fighting for 50 years, and they still didn't know whether it was going to pass or not. Mm-hmm. And um, and so just their their resilience and their strength and their courage is just 
it's it's amazing to me. Um, you know, and that all these women in St. Louis were just really committed to this movement and making it happen. Elizabeth, it's, it's fascinating to think about, um, as Katie just said, this amendment written back in 1875 and just kind of percolating for a quarter of a century and then another 20 years until it could finally get to a place where the men were ready to, to take action on this. Um, so this is really Virginia Miner's uh, generation that was leading the charge on this, and yet she died uh, before women earned the right to vote. Do you think, um, did you get any sense in your research of whether she had hope in the end that they were going to ever get this thing across the finish line. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so she dies in 1894. In 1890s, at 66 years old, she became the president of the Missouri Equal Suffrage Association. So I don't think she would have been leading an organization like that, you know, if she didn't didn't think that she um, that it would eventually happen. And one thing that um, made me smile and laugh a bit um, in my research was actually reading her will. So when she dies in 1894, she leaves $500 each to her nieces so long as they remain unmarried. <laughs> they would only get the money if they didn't marry. And then she also left $1,000 to Susan B. Anthony. And those are the only three people specifically named other than a couple of relatives um, in her will and um, she says that she leaves the thousand dollars to Anthony for all that she has done uh, for women and to support the cause. So you know she, you know, wrote that not knowing if she would die before it happened, but obviously wanted to to either thank Anthony for the work that she had done to see it through, or that so that she could continue the work. Hmm. That's, that's that's a touching bequest there. Um, yeah. And, and such a great celebration looking back 100 years ago. But, we, you know, it is also very important to mention, as celebratory as August of 1920 was for women, white women were the main beneficiaries of this because of ongoing discriminatory voting practices. Katie, is that something that uh, within your museum exhibit, Beyond the Ballot, is that something that you had to grapple with? It really was, and, and to figure out how to present that, and, um, you know, it's interesting because it, it again goes back to the Virginia Minor case, you know, them, the court saying just because you're a citizen doesn't mean that you have the right to vote, and, uh, and that allowed for Jim Crow laws and, you know, educational requirements and land ownership requirements, um, and so... You know, the the 19th Amendment took away the hurdle of gender from voting, but it didn't take away the hurdles of, you know, race and other voting requirements. And um, some of the documentation from the suffrage movement is troubling. Um, and, I, you know, I think as, as we tell history, the more complex it is, the more interesting it is. Um, and so... You know, it wasn't until the, the suffragists expanded their audience outside of people who agreed with them, you know, or who looked like them, um, that it that it actually moved forward. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think it's definitely a conversation to be had, and unfortunately, still something that we struggle with today. And so, a lot of the challenges that we were facing a hundred years ago we're still facing today. And I don't think we can we can shy away from that. And so in a lot of ways, it's a celebration, but it's also, you know, a way to re-examine where we are right now. And we really try to get visitors to do that in the exhibit. 
Katie, you use the word troubling. Um, was this uh, were, were there things that the suffragists were working on where they were um, basically um, trying to rise up on the backs of other people um, rather than pulling them along with them? Uh, yes, I I think so. Um, I think they were put in a hard place um, with the Fifteenth Amendment, which which uh, which gave. Um, essentially gave African-American men the right to vote, um, it split the suffrage movement in two. Mm. Um, and because some women said, we'll support this amendment because our time is coming. And another group said, we can't support this amendment because they don't include women in it. And and so it really split, it split what the suffragists were working towards, and um, it, it created room for them to really... Um, uh, how do I want to put this? <laughs> um, to speak badly about African Americans and people of color. There's a document that we have in the exhibit that is a statistical flyer that basically says, you know, if we give African American women the vote, it's okay because based on the numbers, it won't upset the balance of power. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, not every suffragist was a racist. Um, but there were definitely parts of the movement that that are troubling, hmm. um, you know, and, and that we don't agree with. Um, you know, these women were kind of doing everything that they could to get their their um, their agenda forward, and they made some poor decisions along the way. Hmm. And, um, it, and it sounds like that's something that the exhibit is, is frank about. You're giving people that information of here is the warts and all history of this movement. We, you know, we really try to do that, and you know, my goal as a as a as a historian is to say, you know, we can't ignore that these things happened, but we can we can look at them and we can use them to have conversations and talk about how things are different and talk about how things are the same, and really have that dialogue because if we pretend like they never happened, we can't really talk about them. Um, and so we want to be honest, but we also want to provide a context for people to have those conversations. And I do want to talk here in just the last couple minutes we have today about another exhibit that is coming in the future. Um, and that has to do with the research you did at the old courthouse, Elizabeth. I understand there's now a, uh, an exhibit being planned that will focus specifically on Virginia Minor. What are what are the plans there? Yeah, so... Um, planned in the future at the um, at the old courthouse on the second floor rotunda actually where the the library is now the hope is to turn that into exhibition space uh, centered around Virginia Minor because both her lower circuit court and Missouri Supreme Court cases were um, heard at the old courthouse one of which in a in that very room that's now the library. So, um, and then expanding the conversation out to, to speak a bit more about um, suffrage activism in St. Louis and hopefully uh, make it a permanent um, exhibition. So that's in part what some of the research uh, that I was doing was for, is gathering that um, so that it could be used to one day um, support that exhibition. So that's cross our fingers. That's great to hear. Um, and as we're coming up on this 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, Elizabeth, I'm wondering, what do you find yourself reflecting on, looking back on, on all you've researched and all you know about this movement? Well, really what Katie said something earlier um, in the interview, I think 
is that change doesn't just happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it and sometimes it can be an excruciatingly um hard fought long process, but you know, like she was saying, it it these things don't just spring from nowhere, right? It takes careful planning. Um and it's also no accident. So um just thinking about the possibilities for where we can go f- from where we are now um, and thinking that, you know, change doesn't just happen and then it takes everyone doing their part and and working towards creating a, a, a more just world and community. Well, Elizabeth Eichmann, a doctoral student at St. Louis University, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And Katie Moon of the Missouri History Museum, congratulations on opening this exhibit and, and thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. Thank you so much. This has been great. That's Katie Moon. She is the exhibits manager at the Missouri History Museum. Also joining me was Elizabeth Eichmann. She's a Ph.D. candidate in American Studies at St. Louis University. She's done in-depth research on suffragist Virginia Minor. Beyond the Ballot, St. Louis and Suffrage is on display at the Missouri History Museum. It opened last summer to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. That conversation originally aired last August. We want to remind you that during this Women's History Month, you can see the exhibit in person at the museum. Advance reservations are required. I want to remind you that the biggest source of St. Louis Public Radio's funding comes from listeners like you. Because you value what you hear on St. Louis on the Air, donate today. Go to stlpr.org slash donate. That's stlpr.org slash donate. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.